welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I would like to tell you again about the new venture I have, which is Mojo Cables, a bespoke bespoke boutique cable company um, based here in Yorkshire, which I have started with my friend Matty, who is an electrician and guitarist. Um, and given our skill sets, we decided during lockdown, it would be kind of fun to get together and, and solder some cables. And uh, anybody who knows me or has worked with me knows I don't really do things by halves. So we bought a whole load of cable and a whole load of components. And we tried loads of different things out. We did a lot of research into capacitance um, and all sorts of stuff. And we've landed on what we think is the best combination of components um, that we can find. Uh, so we are now manufacturing our own cables. When I say manufacturing, we're literally soldering them in Matty's kitchen. Um, and then when we finish soldering, we have a couple of beers and we love it. And we think the cables are incredible, not even we think, the cables are incredibly incredibly high co- uh, quality. They are silicon sealed and vacuum formed around the solder, so they're not going anywhere. The quality of the cable is, it's Van Dam. it's the highest quality cable we could find the connectors are the slim connectors which i uh, uh, they're the only ones i like um, and i was adamant that that's what i wanted um, and we also are don- donating a pound from every cable to the charity mind um, which has really become quite prevalent in since lockdown um, and it was one of the biggest reasons that we decided to start doing soldering was to find something um, mindful that we could do together and just sort of you know essentially chat shit, listen to music and do some soldering. And it was quite fun to do that. And uh, hopefully it will be fun for a lot longer. So you can check all of this out at mojocables.com. Yeah, and uh, go and have a look. Every cable comes with a lifetime warranty and it literally just is me and Matty. And we're also on Instagram at mojocables. So you can have a look at everything there. Okay, so on to the episode. This week's episode is with... Joe Carra, Joseph Carra, who is a mastering engineer from Australia. So by the time you're listening to this, you'll have heard the Liam Goff episode. And Liam introduced me to a lot of the sort of analog world in Australia. And we've got quite a lot of listeners down in Australia. So I was really keen to get a few uh, Aussies on the show. Um, And Joe is a fully, well, not fully, he is a majority analog mastering engineer um, and we have a pretty wide-ranging conversation here where we discuss um, merits of mastering, the merits of analog mastering, um, and all sorts of stuff. I, I loved it. He's incredibly knowledgeable. Um, one thing to note is, for some reason, I called him on my actual phone as opposed to WhatsApp, and I hadn't realized I'd done that. So the first half today, the phone conversation quality is telephone um, quality and next week's episode is WhatsApp quality, which is significantly better. And it suddenly changes for the last ten seconds or so of this episode, which is where I've split the episodes up. So just bear that in mind. Um, okay, on to the episode. Here we go. First half of my conversation with Joseph Cara. I mean, guess I'm in touch with you because um, of Liam Goff. Um, you mastered a lot of the um, Teskey Brothers stuff, and Liam couldn't speak highly enough of you. <laughs> oh, wonderful! Um, yeah, well, uh, my relationship goes back with um, the guys to their original album, um, 
Harvest Harvest Moon. Um, and that was the one before um, this last album kind of really um, propelled them into uh, popularity. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they you know, they wandered in one day with Harvest Moon. That's a few years back now, and um, I think uh, Sam had done most of the engineering on that. Um, uh, possibly one of his first attempts, I think, at engineering a full album. And um, yeah, challenging because, you know, their setup is all analog, and um, <laughs> you know, there's a beauty about. Analog is, you know, obviously the intrinsic sound, but uh, the downfall is, you know, recall and all that kind of stuff. So I think it took, yeah, it takes it takes everyone a while to kind of get used to that whole concept of working in analog, and you know, you can't just press save and undo <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I remember on that first album, there was a little bit of back and forth and. Um, there was some stuff I think that we might have had to revisit, and um, but no, it was um, it was great. And then the guys loved that, and then they came with the new album, and with the very last album we did, um, that was even more intense in terms of the workflow because they tracked it all at Sam's place to tape, yeah, and then that's all that all gets flown over to, um. Paul Butler, who mixed it all analog. Paul's got to mix it all um, in the analog world, bounce it down the wire. They have a listen. He's got to keep everything in, in situ and, and in place in case there's any changes. And once they sign off on that, you go to the next one. And so um, it, it is more challenging. Uh, it's a little bit more laborious and time consuming in the analog world. Um, but I, I think the results speak for them for themselves. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I enjoy working in that domain. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, it's not a debate about analog or digital. You know, I mean that that debate's been hashed out so many times. I think it's just a preference of what what you get the best out of. You know, like for me, I feel like I'm at my best if I'm in a room with really good analog gear. And, and Sam and Liam probably feel the same. Mm-hmm. They they feel very comfortable in that domain, whereas I know a stack of engineers that I work with, and they couldn't be happier than in front of a laptop with a pair of headphones. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and they're awesome. They nail it, and they, and they know how to work in that domain. So, um, so everyone has their own style, Um you know, I'll, I'll tap into the digital world if I need to for some things, because there are some unique tools that you can't get in the analog domain. But um, for the most part, I'm in the analog kind of realm. But by the odd little thing that I, I think you know, digital is is kind of good at. But mm-hmm. most of the heavy lifting and most of the tonal shaping and you know, the real big changes in mastering, I kind of prefer to do in the analog domain, really. Yeah. And I try to really exclusively remain that way unless, as I said, there's something very specific that I I can't do in the digital domain that has to be done. I, sorry, that I can't do in the analog domain, but yeah. Um, 
I enjoy it. I have fun. I, I, I love um, twiddling dials and knobs <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, it's been a real eye opener how much I love it because Melbourne's been in lock severe lockdown for the last couple of months. Yeah. Um, so I've been relegated to a home mastering setup. Um, where I've bought some select pieces of gear with me, but I couldn't tear my whole studio down. So I'm doing much more of a hybrid analog and digital thing. And um, I've come to realise I really don't enjoy digital that much. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's cool. I can, you can get the results. Like, there's no, I've been, you know, everyone's been super happy with what I've been doing at home. And as I said, it's a hybrid analog and digital thing. But yeah. I've come to realise that I can't wait to get back into all analog mode again. It's just I've so much more fun, and I think there's a lot of happy accidents that you come, you can, that can happen in the analog world sometimes. And I don't know. I, as I said, it's not. I'm not really having a debate about what's better or worse. It's what you can, what you thrive in better. You know, and for me, I like analog and. You know, with a lot of the bands I work with, whether it's a Teskey Brothers or, say, King Gizzard, um, they're kind of bands that I do enjoy introducing a bit of saturation here and there on their masters. And in the analogue world, I feel like there's more flavours that you can come up with in that domain, you know? You can, you can almost... I think you can almost custom-make saturation that suits each album much better. In the anal- if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because saturation is, doesn't come in one flavour. It comes in a hundred flavours. And and so I don't have a box that I just switch on and that's it. That's my flavour. It's like it's a push and pull, you know, Joe, between, between all different pieces of equipment. Mm-hmm. Like it's like you, you kind of customise the game structure and how one bit of, one bit of gear flows into the next, and you know you, you kind of just pushing that voltage around all the uh, all of the equipment and through the console, and 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 you get different yeah you just get different sounds. I, I feel I can get more varied and interesting sounds in the analog domain. You know, um, do you find you, you can push you know, it harder? So with the with the analog stuff versus um like in the box say um do you find that like it, the uh the outboard gear is almost more forgiving so it's a little bit more subtle but means that you can push it a bit harder whereas if if you've got a piece of you know a plug-in trying to emulate the outboard it's going to almost be like a caricature of of the sound so it, it's almost like they want to push it harder to make you think that you've done something more with it if you hit if you know what i mean yeah, oh, look, I've been using that word forgiving for, I reckon, the past three decades. That's a really good way to describe analog gear in mastering. It is so much more forgiving. Like, there's some wild things. Like, I've done masters where I've just reached over to my manly, very new um, tube compressor, and I've not looked at the meters because it would scare me, and I blindly just turned up a knob because I felt I wanted to do that. <laughs> and, man, and it sounded so good. I remember on a King Gizzard album that the guy said, remember Stu's, I think it was Flying Microtonal Banana, um, which is a weird 
name for an album, but a brilliant name for an album. He said, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He kind of said, "Oh, Joe, the mixes have come out a bit too clean for us. Um, can, can you rough it up a bit in mastering?" And I was like, "Oh, yeah, that's cool." Um, and you know, if if the guys ask for something like that, I'm, it's it's kind of fun for me to step into it a bit more. Um, and I remember just leaning on that very and just crunching it a little bit and. I don't know if I could have gotten that sound. And, like, that album got, you know, people loved the sound of that album. The band loved it. Um, the fans loved it. And, yeah, I, I don't know if that could have been achieved digitally. Possibly, you know, maybe I just don't know how to use digital that well. I don't know. But <laughs> I, I remember looking over at the meters and thinking, oh, my God, just don't look at those. You know, just <laughs> forget, forget it. But it sounded so good. And this is what I'm talking about, forgiving, like, Sometimes you can just punch something in the analog domain and it goes, okay, that's fine by me. It's, it just starts to open up a little bit. And this is a good thing about good analog gear. Like when you're talking about the really high-end stuff, man, you, you can push that stuff and it just kind of goes, give me more. You know, yeah. it can take it. It doesn't, you know, even my analog console, my mastering console, you know, you, I, you just don't look at the meters because it, it's kind of um. We'll actually have to get my tech to drop the VU meters because it started scaring clients, you know. <laughs> because um, <laughs> I was pegging the meters constantly, but but the thing is, it had so much beautiful headroom. Um, this guy in the UK, I think in Scotland, this this guy Crispin makes um these mastering consoles, and they have headroom for days and. You just drive the signal into it, and it's so nice. And when it kind of runs out of headroom, it's even nicer. It starts to bend the wave a little bit in a really <laughs> nice way. And um, so, yeah, it, 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 it is forgiving. I, I do find that, and and that's what I'm talking about, happy accidents. Sometimes you're mastering the way, and you're like, oh, I just need a little bit more out of this guy. And you just kind of tweak the knob and it's like, oh, wow, that's great. I didn't think there was any, you know, more life left in that. But, you know, but I find in plugins, I, I, I don't get that experience very much where I, I get that kind of pleasurable experience about trying to drive something and all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, that's awesome. I, yeah. You know, they're good. They're good tools. And as I said, I, I've really done a deep dive into digital mastering during lockdown, but I probably would have been lost if I didn't have my... um analog gear alongside to kind of supplement that stuff. But anyway, that's just my take. And as I say, I think you can custom, you can customize it too. Like for every album, you might think, oh, I want to saturate it, but you know, I don't want to do a fuzzy saturation. I want to do more of a warm and then vice versa. I want to push the, this nickel transformer as opposed to this iron one or this or that. And I don't know, you get these different shapes and sounds and, but because it's all analog and you're using gain structure to control how you're hitting all of these um, physical elements such as tubes and transforms, you can actually create a certain sound that you want that would suit that mix. Because one certain type of saturation might not suit a mix that has, say, too much 3K in it. Yeah. Whereas another mix that has a lot of 6K might sound really good with that. So... I don't know. I think there's a lot more freedom to tailor things in the analog domain. Um, that's just how I find it. And I find it quicker too. 
Whereas I've been doing some of that stuff in the digital domain. I find it takes a long time, probably not as rewarding, um, but I find it much quicker. But that's just because, you know, I'm probably just old. (laughs) I've been working working in that domain for a long time, so I feel really comfortable with it. Whereas there's probably some 18-year-old out there going, nah, man, I can do that in two seconds. And I'm like, that's great. You know, yeah, yeah. So whatever works for you, really. Do you find that there's a difference? So, say you receive some um, mixes from the Teskey Brothers guys, and it they've been everything's been done um, fully analog and outboard, versus receiving mixes that have been created in the box. Do you find that there's a difference in terms of what you need, how you need to approach mastering them? Oh. Uh... No, I, I don't think so. I don't think that the actual domain of which it was mixed really influences me too much. Mm-hmm. I think it comes down to source sound and the actual balance of the mix. Just because something was analog or digital, it's probably not something like, you know, I'm going to do or not do. It really is based upon the production that you're given. Um, I mean... Maybe one of the things that I mightn't do is, like, if I get something from Sam, I might not put it through a tape machine because I know it's been through plenty of tape already. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you are right. I guess in that aspect, yeah, I probably wouldn't put something to tape if it has gone to tape already. Um, but if something is really digital um, and I, I find it kind of quite a thin sound, I, I might bounce it, you know, Tape. I mean, it's not something I would do every day and just out of, you know, just out of habit, but that's definitely an option. Um, but, yeah, um, and sometimes with the digital stuff, you might have to add a little bit more grit or a bit more analog stuff as, a, if, as opposed to receiving an all-analog mix. Yeah. Um, that probably might already have some of that in there. If it's gone through a desk and a lot of outboard gear and tape, um, I might have, I, I, I might ease back on maybe some of that analog flavour that I normally do, but it does depend. Like sometimes I get an analog mix and I still feel like I want to give it the full treatment, you know, and just go, you know, and still kind of give it a little bit of analog attitude. It, re- it really depends on how the people have mixed and produced it because you can be all analog and produce a very clean and clinical mix yeah. if that's what you want. So it, it, it kind of um, yeah, it kind of depends on on how, on how it comes into me, really. Um, Do you because have... before you even start? Sorry, no, 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 sorry, continue. No, because I was going to say because before you even start in queuing and um, using compressors or mastering equipment, there's also the electronic side of stuff that you've got to decide upon too. Like there's, I've got a couple of different paths I can go down in my chain. Mm-hmm. I can kind of have a, a slightly cleaner um, a signal path or I can have something that's a little bit, um, oh, I don't know if the word gritty is right, but just something just with a little bit more um, saturation, a little bit of, you know, dirt or grit on there. I can, I can choose that. So, um, they're all decisions that you make as you're listening to it. What it's so I've got some questions about um, sort of more the nitty gritty. But before I do, this is something. I, 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 
Oh, are you there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've got, I've got some more questions on some, some of the more technical things, but something I like to ask at Mastering Engineers, and because every, every Mastering Engineer I speak to seems to have a section on their website saying, what is mastering? And everybody has mm. a very slightly different way of explaining it. So I'd love to hear in, in your own words, what, how do you view what the mastering process is and what it brings out of, uh, of mixes? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's one of those questions that I've got to kind of brace myself because it, you know, there's no simple, you know, there's no quick way to kind of explain it. There's, there's so, I feel that there's a lot involved in mastering. Um, but I guess the quick and short answer is you, you're trying to make the best version of that mix possible. Mm-hmm. If I have to really kind of dumb it down, that's what it is. I'm trying to make the best version of the mix that's been supplied to me, you know, and that's it. That, that's what I'm trying to do, make it the most interesting, um, the most pleasant sounding and the most engaging version of that mix, you know, without going back and remixing it, you know? Yeah. You know, that's what mastering is. You're trying to do that. Now, that's, just scratching the surface of what mastering really is, but you know, in essence, that's what you're trying to do. It is about presentation, isn't it? It's about getting that rough diamond that someone gives you, and then doing your thing so that it translates um, to to the wider world in, in a really good way. Because so many mixes I hear are really good and great but they just would not have had any impact or they're not engaging because there's a certain, you know, they just, they sound unfinished. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and they would almost sound unpleasant to listen to. I did an album a couple of days ago um, and it was so dull, <laughs> but it was such a good mix. Great songwriting, really good mix. But I think the guy was listening to it on really bright speakers in a really bright room, possibly his bedroom, which was really kind of will reflect a lot of bright frequencies. And um, and so he just, I think, turned down the top end on a lot of things. Um, and so if that went out into the world, most people wouldn't listen to it again because it just didn't sound nice and pleasant to listen to, yet it was a great, it was an awesome song. Yeah. And after, but after mastering, it was a, mastering can sometimes be transformational. And I don't want to overplay mastering, but there are some jobs that you simply wouldn't let out the front door without mastering. They wouldn't get past first base. Yeah, yeah. The mastering really, really transforms it from night to day. And that's not every job. There are some jobs that come in and only need the 5% and you go, wow. They've nailed it. It sounds good, and that's part of my job is to also know and to to um, sit back and not mess something up that's already near perfect. Um, and most things lie in between, Joe. Most things fall somewhere in between <laughs> being a transformational master or something perfect. Most mixes come in in the middle there. That, that they need a good whack of mastering. But they sound pretty good, um, but mastering certainly brings them home and. And certainly helps it translate much better on all systems, you know, and 
um, you know, that translation, you know, goes hand in hand in what I said about what mastering is. It just helps translate whatever the mixer or the artist had in their head to the wider to the wider public because I know that dull album that came in. I know that's not how the artist wanted it. Yeah. Because it's just not. It's just not good audio. It's not standard audio. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um. So so my job was to trans you know help you know bring his vision to, to life so to speak. So everyone now hears all of the to the arrangement. They hear all of the nice tone in the guitars and the drums that sound great. So, you know, I don't. I didn't even have to call him and ask him, you know, do you need me to do this? I, I knew straight away that that's what the job kind of needed. Um, so, yeah, some... Is it, is it, know, it's um, interesting that you the way that you describe it with the sort of bedroom mixes, if you like. So, I mean, I'm thinking back to, to mastering you know, 50 years ago when they're trying to stop the needle jumping off the record and it's yeah. it's doing a different service at that point and then it's come, mm-hmm. it's it's almost, it's still as important but it's important for a different reason and I, I think it's interesting now that there's, you know, there's all these companies um, giving, you know, that do, do, comp- uh, do, do have plugins that, you know, sort of claim to, to be, uh, in just sort of general mastering tools, but I almost yeah. think that it's more important now. Your role as a mastering engineer is more important because everybody's mixing at home, like you say. Everybody's into into that kind of thing, and it's a it's almost uh, yeah, yeah. It's like your role has become become more important because of the way that music's being created these days. Oh, brother! I tell you, I think you're a hundred percent, and I've had this conversation with other mastering engineers and veteran mixing engineers. You know, back in the day, go back to whatever, the 60s, 70s, even the 80s, you know, you're talking about bands that have hundreds of thousand-dollar budgets, if not million-dollar budgets, using the best studios in the world. I know some of these mastering engineers, they they got the half-inch tape, they put it on the machine, and that was job done. Now, Now, I don't want to disrespect any of those guys either because they, they obviously worked and there were some albums that they did their magic on. And, you know, the fact is that they were the gatekeepers for all of those great records. And that's, mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that I believe a lot of those records in the past would have been delivered in a really high-grade fashion. Yes. You know? Um, and, and, and look, they said as much. I, I've read and spoken to as many mastering engineers who have been mastering longer than me that have said, yeah, Back in the day, you know, you'd almost be nervous to twiddle a dial because it would come in from um, this million-dollar engineer, this superstar engineer, and it was near perfect. And so your job as a masking engineer was to do the faithful transfer from the half-inch to a quarter-inch, which was the cutting master for the vinyl plant, Mm -hmm. um, and really just do those housekeeping things of making sure the needle wouldn't jump out of the groove, doing those kind of basic things. And obviously there were going to be jobs that needed, you know, deeper mastering and higher levels of mastering. But what I'm saying is they would have received more high-end recordings than what we receive today because so many of the recordings I receive are project and DIY-based. So once again, not to disrespect or downplay what's happened in the past, 
But I just think they probably were given a lot better recordings in the past, um, done by professionals with massive budgets in big studios. Um, having said that, I'm sure there would have been plenty of stuff-up albums, and even with all that budget and that, they, <laughs> they still would have sounded kind of mediocre because yeah. of many different things like time constraints or pressure within the studio or, you know, um, uh, character kind of conflicts in the studio, all that kind of stuff impact on the sound of an album. Um, but today it's really important. And I, I've been mastering for nearly 30 years. And I I remember what mastering was in my first session compared to what it is today. And I can tell you, it's so different. Wow. It's so different. The expectation of what people expect today. I, I couldn't do what I did 30 years ago. I was given a DAT tape or like a half-inch tape and, you know, the expectation was, you know, you just babysit the, the master mixes onto the end format and and try not to stuff it up. Like, <laughs> you almost think, you're almost encouraged not to put any hands on it and just kind of do a very faithful transfer. Um, and then as the years ticked over, I mean, this is going back to the very early 90s, like 90, 92, something like that. <laughs> Um, but then from then, I could sense that there was more expectation for mastering. Clients came in over the years. They asked for more. They wanted more. Um, and and then there was this explosion of DIY stuff in the mid-90s. And so people were really that, – that's when they put the foot down and they're like, we need a mastering engineer to bring this home. Like, this is going to need a lot of work. Um, and that's when I think internationally, this whole people wake up about mastering and they're like, hey, man, we can push these guys a bit more. These guys that just transferred our mixes before, we're going to lean on them too. And, and so it became this other discrete stage of production, which, as I said, I think before that, maybe it was just considered to be lesser form of production and more a form of just needed to do it for these technical reasons. It was a very technical-based thing, yeah. and it still is. But, yeah, but with the, now there's more of an emphasis on it's just this whole other stage where you can really milk the most out of the mix. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I kind of say that with a slight reservation, not to disrespect any engineers in the past, but I, I'm assuming a lot of those guys would agree that these days people are milking more out of this process and wanting more from it. Um, and, uh, and the fact is that there's a whole industry making tools specifically for mastering in the analog and digital domain. Like people are really, um, yeah, yeah, people are really asking so much more from from this stage. I think that the proof's there that you know, in in the the engineers that I've spoken to who you know started say at Abbey Road, they they started off in the mastering room, you know, so they're sort of. 18 years old in the mastering room and that I mean I think that proves you proves your point and now and the, the mastering is almost um it's a revered process you know people uh put put mastering en- engineers quite rightly on a bit of a pedestal I think and um give you creative it's kind of the opposite now isn't it it's kind of the opposite where yeah. if if, la- if larger mastering facilities are looking for a mastering engineer, they're often looking for a seasoned mixer or yeah. producer. <laughs> you, know, you know, so it's the opposite. They're not looking for an unknown 
person anymore. You almost have to have done your dues by mixing a hundred albums and producing and stuff. So yeah, your observation is spot on. It's kind of reversed a little bit, but um, but my, you know, the the, the way people review mastering engineers, I have that same um, respect for mixing guys. Like you know, it's it's we're all in this boat together. Like the mixing guys, uh, it's just all good engineering. Yes. Like you know what I mean? Like there's no dark art to anything. Nothing. This is all just about good engineering principles, good taste, making good choices. And thankfully, I think my tasting audio um, probably um, is similar to a lot of my clients, which I'm very thankful for, unless <laughs> I've been in trouble. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the mixing guys I work with, man, that's the amount of work they put in is phenomenal. So it, it all is just about good engineering, whether you're mixing, recording, mastering, producing, uh, it, it, everyone is on the same is on the same level of respect as far as I'm concerned because they're, they're all very difficult and time-consuming jobs that take a lot of skill. I mean, you know, some of these guys mixing, you know, 80 and 90 track albums, you know, that's, that's a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge and thousands of hours of dedication in order to be able to wrangle a mix and make it sound amazing. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, the master is often only as good as what I'm getting, you know? Yeah, I think this is really, it's really interesting to me. It's almost like each of the roles has um, has sort of bloomed and they're all sort of squashing together. Um, my The way my mind works is quite, um, quite. It, it, I, I visualise things in pictures quite a lot and I can sort of picture, uh, you know, the... A producer's role and an engineer's role, often they're the same person, and a mastering engineer's role all sort of growing, but growing into each other. So it is not, it's it's almost like each role has uh, taken on an even more important part um, than it ever yeah. was previously. And, and not one of them is any more important than another. It's all just, you know, yeah. everybody understands what their role is within the process and is able to fulfill That's it. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're spot on. You're spot on each role is as important as the previous and you can't lean more heavily on one part of the process than the other if that balance is unhinged then you're never going to get the, the best result you know if, if the mastering engineer you know is, is not quite right on the day and he's like oh well you know the mix is pretty good and you know it, it'll the client will be happy and it'll translate fine you know, if you're not on your game, you just let that mix down. And it's the same with the mixer. If the mixer's like, oh, the master engineer, you know, I'll leave that to him. I'm not sure about that bottom. You know, I mean, you've got to try your best. Of course, you might let go of a mix and be maybe insecure about something. That's human nature. Yeah. But to, to leave it too much with the other for the next person when you're passing the baton across, that that's just lazy, and you're never going to get the best result. For me, the best sounding albums. I've ever been associated with. And there we have it, the first half of my conversation with Joe Carra. I hope you've enjoyed that. Um, go and check his website out, Crystal Mastering. 
Um, he as he he says it at the end of the next episode actually, but they uh you know they they receive masters from all over the world or they receive mixes to master from all over the world. So do go and check that out. He's got some incredible gear. Um, but as we've discussed in previous episodes and the next episode, the gear isn't everything. But we do love gear, and he has some incredible gear. Um, so yes, thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do that through my website, allyouneedisdrums.com. My email address is joe at allyouneedisdrums. You can find me on Instagram at allyouneedisdrums. Um, on my website, you can also buy one of the lovely podcast mugs which support this podcast. And thank you to everybody that has bought one already. Um, it is much appreciated. Uh, a huge thank you to Rory Hancock for editing and uploading this podcast to joseph kane for the intro and outro music and to david henshaw for the artwork he supplies you guys have a fantastic week and i will see you next tuesday goodbye